Hello, this is Sandra Hindman, founder and president of Les Enlumineurs. We specialize in manuscripts, miniatures, historic jewelry, and other small-scale works of art from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Welcome, and please enjoy today's podcast. Hello again, everyone. I'm Kristen Racanello, occasional host of the Les Enlumineurs podcast. I hope that we see you at Freeze Masters London this week, this Wednesday to October 17th. We'll be presenting three newly discovered miniatures by Simon Benning. These dramatic paintings depict vivid scenes from The Passion of Christ and The Last Judgment from the Enrique Ribera prayer book. So last week, we kicked off our October sort of spooky programming by exploring the text manuscript Del Idea del Futuro, or On the Idea of the Future, which is an unpublished treatise on chiromancy or palmistry. Today, we're going to change tactics and think about the types of objects that medieval people wore to protect themselves. We have previously discussed that medieval people sometimes wore relics and incorporated them into their jewelry, but why did they do this? And were there other kinds of objects that functioned similarly other than relics and reliquaries? So to start, let's just set out a few different definitions. So a talisman, or an amulet, is any object ascribed with religious or magical powers that's intended to act as protection, to heal, or even to harm individuals for whom they're made. Talismans are often portable objects carried on someone in a variety of different ways, but they can also actually be installed permanently in architecture. We won't focus on those kind of talismans today. The word talisman ultimately comes from the ancient Greek word telesma, meaning completion, religious rite, or payment, and ultimately from the verb teleo, which means I complete or I perform a rite. Talismans were sometimes used in medieval medicine, often in combination with charms or prayers. The combining of protective objects and ritual produced what we might call magical cures in the Middle Ages, and this has become an increasingly attractive field in the past few decades. In the field of medical history, for example, Tony Hunt has noted in his study of the 13th century medical recipes that many recipes mingle charms and magic with pharmaceutical preparations. Studies of university medicine have offered more details about how medieval medical writers perceived magical cures. For example, Luc Demetre has argued that Bernard of Gordon, who was a physician based at the University of Montpellier in the late 13th and early 14th centuries, rejected, quote, suspending herbs around the neck, sorceries, incantations, and numerous other things which are better not revealed, end quote. But nevertheless, Bernard recommended some charms and perhaps also astrological talismans which were engraved images designed to draw down the powers of the stars um, and which were also denounced as magic by other theologians. 
Joseph Ziegler has found that Bernard's contemporary, Arnold of Villanova, was similarly prepared to accept the curative properties of astrological talismans while denouncing certain other healing practices as magic. Most recently, Michael Vaughn and Leah Olson have argued that medical writers did not categorize charms as magic at all, but instead put them into a broader category of empirica or experimenta. These were cures that had been observed to work, but which could not be explained by the theory of the humors, and so their basis was in experience rather than in medical theory, hence empirica or experimenta. Attitudes to Empirica varied, however, with some medical writers more tolerant than others, and McVaughn suggests that many writers have become less sympathetic to charms from the 14th century onward. Other historians have studied magical cures as part of medieval religious culture, and like medical historians, they have uncovered a range of attitudes in these sources. Some individuals strongly condemn cures that they see as magical or superstitious, but scholars like Valerie Flint have argued that in the early medieval period, there were also clerics who were willing to compromise with potentially questionable methods of healing. This diversity of medieval opinion continued to exist throughout the late Middle Ages. Emmon Duffy and Don Skemmer have pointed out that many written charms closely resemble orthodox prayers and exorcisms, and that many lay people and even many clerics saw them as legitimate. Similarly, late medieval churchmen did not object to all amulets, but rather sought to distinguish pious amulets from, quote, superstitious ones. Magical cures thus had an ambiguous status among churchmen and medical writers. Writers in both groups criticized the use of cures that they saw as magical, but were sometimes prepared to accept a relatively wide range of remedies in practice. In both groups, there also existed the potential for different individuals to adopt different views. In the Summa for Confessors, Thomas of Cobham observed around the year 1215 that natural forces existed in three materials, words, herbs, and stones. This is a proverb found in other medieval texts, and it suggests that some writers thought about nonverbal amulets and talismans as a similar way to charms and herbal medicines, because all of these could be conceived of as working by means of natural forces. Medical writers, sometimes, linked the wearing of items on the body with charms, on the grounds that both were Empirica. For example, John of Gadsden was an Oxford physician who wrote a medical encyclopedia, the Rosa Anglica, in 1311. In this, John suggested a nosebleed remedy, which required the sick person to wear herbs around his or her neck, as well as saying a charm or prayer while gathering these herbs. The big names of the medieval period are generally very critical of talismans and amulets. St. Augustine criticized incantations and amulets altogether as magical. 
Thomas Aquinas's comprehensive Summa Theologica did include a discussion of the wearing of substances in order to affect the body, but he devoted most of this to the specialized case of astrological talismans, arguing that the characters and images engraved on these could have no natural efficacy, and so they must be designed to communicate with demons. One of the few authors to reproduce Aquinas's writing for lay manuscripts, like pastoral manuals, was John of Freiburg, and even he devoted less space to them than to written amulets and incantations. This may have been because the authors of pastoral manuals were more interested in widespread magical practices that could be performed by many different lay people, like the healing prayers discussed by William of Wren, than in learned practices like astrological talismans, which were much more likely to be restricted to the educated elite. They were not accessible to those who didn't have the same kind of training in astrology. Those 13th century authors who did mention the wearing of substances, like stones and herbs, did not deny that they could heal illness. Although Aquinas condemned wearing written characters and astrological images, he did admit that certain substances might have natural properties conferred on them by the stars, which could affect the body. Aquinas' teacher, the theologian and scientific writer Albertus Magnus, also argued in his treatise on minerals, De Mineralbus, that when precious stones were worn on the body, quote, healing and help are conferred solely by natural powers, end quote. One pastorally-minded writer even thought that these properties could be useful for preaching. Thomas of Cantempre, a Dominican friar who wrote a work on the nature of things in the 1260s, discussed the properties of stones and even astrological talismans as evidence of God's power. This view of the properties of substances as a part of the created world which could be legitimately used probably explains why many authors of pastoral manuals said less about non-written amulets than about verbal ones. Strange words and charms looked more obviously like an attempt to communicate with demons than wearing or carrying a stone or herb, which, you could argue, worked because of mysterious but nevertheless natural and even possibly God-given forces. So we do see a predominance of material amulets and talismans in the medieval period because they were more ambiguous. They didn't carry the connotations of demonology that we see in things like written charms. One very well-known nonverbal talisman is the talisman of Charlemagne, which is a 9th century Carolingian object that's usually referred to as an enclopion. An enclopion is a medallion with an icon at the center that's usually worn around the neck. We associate this term most of the time with Orthodox or Eastern Catholic bishops. The icon of an enclopion is normally surrounded by jewels or paste. It often also has a small jeweled pendant hanging down at the bottom. The enclopion is suspended from the neck by a long gold chain, sometimes made up of intricate links. A portion of the chain is usually joined together by a ring behind the neck so that it hangs down, and often it hangs down on the back of the wearer. 
Enclopia came in many different shapes, including ovals, rhombuses, squares, or even double-headed eagles. They have various different forms and various materials ranging from gold to glass. Pectoral crosses, like our reliquary pendant with Christ that was made in Germany around 1480, are often also considered enclopia, or at least within the category of enclopia. This pendant is a very special silver object with a rare expressiveness. At its core is a hinged rectangular box that likely once contained a relic fragment. The design and details of this pendant, such as the Gothic foliage, suggests that the goldsmith was inspired by the Prince of Martin Schongauer and the Master E.S. A tiny sculpture of the crucified Christ attached to the front surface of the box occupies the center of a minimalist composition representing the crucifixion on the Mount of Golgotha, which is a small mound at the base of the cross. As it typically does in German Gothic iconography, the figure of Christ slumps down, hanging from painfully stretched arms. The tiny body is elegant, though, in its twisting and angular collapse. It surely received repeated attentive devotion from the original pendant's owner, and the surface is extensively rubbed. The face is obliterated, with only a few details of strained muscles on the left arm and rib cage still visible in what once have been a very detailed and sensitive rendering of Christ's body. Elaborate, floriated arms extend the reach of the box's imagery into elegant vegetal forms. So these not only echo the cross, but also convey its fecundity, or by that I mean its life-giving qualities, a common symbol in images of the crucifixion. The German artist relied on forms in his artistic sphere for this exuberant curling and growing leaf form. The foliage resembles that study in an engraving again by Martin Schongauer, in which the artist combines acanthus-like forms with the stem and vines of a grape plant. The pendant's leaf forms may reference Eucharistic symbolism of the grape, or the repeated Trinitarian three-leaf shape also might emphasize the sacred nature of the image. Through its artistic flourish, the ornament reinforces and literally extends this piece's meaning, as we might note from Thomas of Cobham's writing in the Summa for Confessors. Like many writers of the 13th, 14th, and 15th centuries, Cobham was obsessively interested in the natural, healing, life-giving, and vivacious properties of things. In non-textual amulets, non-verbal charms, and talismans like this pectoral cross, the material properties of the object formed the core of the object's protective function. The custom of wearing objects of this character was evidently derived from the pagan practice of wearing bula, containing amulets around the neck as a protection against incantations. However, the church did try to purify this practice by substituting objects venerated by Christians for those which they were accustomed to before conversion. According to St. Jerome, some of the faithful in his day attached a superstitious importance to these aids of piety. 
He even censures certain classes of women who he believes have, in some degree, identified sanctity with an exaggerated veneration that approached even worship of sacred relics. So the famous treasure of Monza contains two talismanic gifts that are good examples of this type of object. The Theca Persica, which is a treasure-bound gospel book sent by Pope Gregory the Great to Queen Theodolina for her son Adelaide. Another gift is known as Adelaide's Cross, which has been remodeled in the successive centuries. The gospel book consists of two half-golden shells decorated with cloisonné enamels, gems, and pearls, and with an inscription attesting that Theodolina decorated it as a gift to the Basilica of St. John the Baptist. It's thus possible that Theodolina herself commissioned the manufacture of this precious object and donated it to the basilica, and that Gregory sent her only the smaller objects, including this amulet of the cross and rings, as well as two books on his dialogues and a gospel letter in a leather setting. Objects with protective powers, either through their materiality, iconography, or their status as containers of relics, played important roles medically and socially for both elite and simple lay people in the medieval period, as we see through both the cross at Monza and our cross at Les Illumineurs. Similarly to our pectoral cross and the cross of Adelaide, the talisman of Charlemagne might contain a relic, a fragment of the true cross. It is the only surviving piece of gold work which can be connected directly with Charlemagne himself with any degree of certainty. The origin of the reliquary has been lost, so it's difficult to specify the circumstances of its creation. Charlemagne died in the imperial capital of Aachen in February 28th, 814. Since the emperor did not leave specific instructions, his entourage decided to bury him in Aachen Cathedral. The talisman was believed to have been suspended from a necklace worn on Charlemagne's body in his tomb, though it's really not been possible to prove this. Charlemagne's biographer, Einhard, does not mention the reliquary in the Vita Caroli Magni, that is, the biography The Life of Charlemagne. So while the talisman's characteristics are slightly different from the works that can be dated with certainty to the reign of Charlemagne, considering the shape of the jewel and its typical Carolingian goldsmithery, the experts on this period attest with confidence a dating to the middle of the late 9th century. The exhumation of Charlemagne, conducted in the year 1000 by Otto III, was chronicled by Thitmar, Bishop of Merseburg, around 1012 to 1018. Quote, Ignoring the exact place where the bones of Emperor Charles lay, Otto III secretly broke the ornamental tiling of the church where they were supposed to be, then dug until discovering them in a royal sarcophagus. He took for himself the golden cross that hung around the corpse's neck and a part of his not yet putrefied clothes, after which he put everything back in place reverently. End quote. This text is too imprecise to establish any meaningful link with the reliquary. The body of Charlemagne was exhumed again in 1166 for his canonization by order of the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa. 
Once again, no information was given about a reliquary during this exhumation. The list of relics of Aachen was mentioned in manuscripts written around 1200, based on original documents from the 9th century. So while those original documents have been lost, some elements of these secondary sources have been copied in more recent manuscripts that are now deposited at the Berlin State Library and the University of Bonn in Germany. We find in particular in these the mention of the hair of the Virgin Mary. The booklet of the relics of Aachen was produced around 1520. Intended as a manuscript for pilgrims, it is more accurate and does indeed mention a reliquary, a, quote, precious jewel, container of hairs and milk of the Virgin Mary, end quote. This brief description of the precious jewel could be a description of the talisman of Charlemagne, especially considering that the identity and preservation of the relics would have been much more important to the 16th century authors than the appearance of the reliquary itself. According to the Gemnological Institute of America, it was not until the 17th century that engravings of the reliquary began to appear. One of the first was by Abraham Hogenberg, in which the talisman was shown with other relics from the treasury of Aachen Cathedral. The engraving is accompanied by the words, Capilli B. Virginis Mari, the hair of the Virgin Mary. Later engravings of the relics, especially by the engravers Gerhard Altensbach and Jacobus Herwin, were reproduced in various works during the 17th and 18th centuries. On all of these engravings, the talisman is stylized with a center stone surrounded alternately by four faceted stones and four cabochons. Pearls, which appeared in later engravings between each stone pair, are not visible, suggesting that the reliquary was added to by donors as it continued to live in sacred space. This is not uncommon, as many reliquaries have an extensive object biography, which include additional donations and objects being incorporated into the reliquary. During the French Revolution, though, the relics from Aachen Cathedral were taken to the German city of Paderborn. After the revolution, Aachen became the administrative headquarters of the Ruhr Department in 1802 and acquired a French status. Relics that had been displaced in 1794 were restored to the cathedral. Napoleon, crowned emperor on May 18, 1804, considered himself the heir of Charlemagne and decided to visit the tomb of his predecessor. His wife, Empress Josephine, preceded him in July 1804, and in August, Marc-Antoine Berdolet, nominated Bishop of Aachen by Napoleon two years earlier, offered the emperor the reliquary. A newspaper excerpt from this time reveals the presence of, quote, a small round reliquary made of pure gold adorned with stones, the bulb of which contains relics, and the large stones in the middle contain a small cross made of wood from the Holy Cross. These two small reliquaries were found around Charlemagne's neck when his body was exhumed from his sepulcher in 1166, and history tells us that Charlemagne was accustomed to wear these relics during battles, end quote. This message suggests that at the time, the talisman preserved several relics. From this point on, the relevant texts no longer mention the virgin's hair. It's possible that between 
1801 and 1804, the bishop removed all or part of the relic and replaced it with a small wooden cross consisting of two fragments, supposedly from the true cross, fastened by a thread. An examination was carried out in the 1960s by Bernard Gamond, a specialist in ornamental trimmings, who identified the thread as raw tussar silk from India, used between the late 18th and 19th centuries, so further suggesting that this must have been added between 1801 and 1804. The rest of the reliquary's history is much more precise. After divorcing Napoleon, Josephine remained the reliquary's custodian. The talisman was her personal property and not part of the crown jewels of France. At Josephine's death in 1814, her daughter, Hortense, inherited the talisman. Besides being Napoleon's stepdaughter, Hortense was also the emperor's sister-in-law following her marriage to Louis Bonaparte, King of Holland. At Arnberg Estate, Hortense received many visitors, including Alexander Dumas. In his 1833 book, Impression des Voyages en Suisse, which includes historical chronicles, a journey log, and ethnological considerations, the great writer describes this reliquary. This is the first known use of the term talisman for this object. Dumas wrote, quote, It is now the talisman of Charlemagne, this talisman has quite a story. When the tomb in which the great emperor had been buried was opened at Aachen, his skeleton was clothed in his Roman clothes, and his talisman, which made him victorious, was suspended from his neck. This talisman was a piece of the true cross sent to him by the empress. It was enclosed in an emerald, and this emerald was suspended by a chain to a large ring of gold. The citizens gave it to Napoleon when he entered their city, and Napoleon, in 1813, tied this chain around the neck of Queen Hortense, confessing to her that the day of Austerlitz and of Wagram, he carried it on his breast as Charlemagne had done 900 years ago." End quote. This romantic description of the talisman by Dumas contributed to its mystery and notoriety. In 1927, the reliquary became the property of the Diocese of Rheims. It was classified as a historical monument in 1962 and deposited five years later in the treasury of the Palace of Tau in Rheims, where it remain, remains on permanent display. In 1964, the famous goldsmiths Lucien and Jean-Claude Toulouse restored the talisman under the supervision of Jean Tarlon, General Inspector of Historical Monuments. During the restoration, two missing pearls and one emerald were replaced, as indicated by Tyrolon. All known photos of the talisman taken thereafter present the object in its current form with the same small chain. Unfortunately, the only photographs from before the restoration, taken in 1866 and around 1915, lack sufficient resolution to really be able to show us any of the missing stones. The Gemological Institute of America, or the GIA, conducted the first gemological characterization of the Talisman of Charlemagne through two rounds of analysis in May 2017 and June 2018 
They produced a fascinating analysis of this talisman of Charlemagne based on this data from 2017 and 2018, and you can find a link to that and their public findings in the show notes below. They have concluded that the talisman is a gold reliquary in the form that they call a eulogy ampulla, which I suppose is a reference to the Monza ampulla and other late antique pilgrimage ampulla that were used to collect dirt or oil, which was known as eulogia, from the Holy Land. The talisman is composed of two circular parts joined together by a band of gold. The thickest point of the entire talisman is at the center of the two stones. The surface includes filigree and repoussé work, and the front side is dominated by a large bluish cabochon surrounded by nine colored stones, alternating with eight pearls. This is the face most often seen in artistic representations of the talisman. It is also the face that reveals by magnifying effect through the cabochon the supposed fragments of the true cross mounted in the shape of a cross. The reverse side shows a large bluish gray polished stone with a sugar loaf shape surrounded by nine other colored stones. The small stones are mainly polished as cabochons and have various shapes such as oval, round, diamond, pear, or freeform. Only two stones are faceted. Most of the green stones present polished natural prism faces. All of the pearls have the peculiarity of being drilled. Their original setting consisted of a gold crimp pushed inside of this drill hole. The GIA's observation of the center cabochon on the front of the talisman revealed the presence of numerous different bubbles, which are characteristic of artificial glass. In addition, the sacral relic was clearly visible when viewed in transmitted light. This relic consists of two fragments of wood tied together in the shape of a cross, again, likely between 1801 and 1804. The center stone on the back of the talisman contained numerous fissures, unaltered healing fissures, and parallel tubes of fluid inclusions and brown inclusions, which are possibly mica. The small colored stones set in the talisman are relatively opaque and did not have any characteristic inclusions. The green stones have hexagonal prismatic shapes and fingerprint textures that indicate beryl. The sapphire is metamorphic in origin, but different from basaltic sapphire from Le Puy and Villet in France, which was a potential source of sapphires in medieval European jewelry. The polished center sapphire on the back of the talisman was unambiguously identified as corundum. They also easily identified amethyst quartz and emeralds in the piece. So the conclusion of the GIA's analysis is intriguing. The talisman's gems have different cuts, so they speculate that they were recovered from various ornaments or jewels. However, the very basic styles of the different cuts suggest that the setting of these gemstones is contemporaneous with the talisman's manufacture, and thus probably from the 9th century, with the exception of two pearls and one emerald that were replaced during restoration in 1964. So, where do these conclusions leave us? Would the medieval user of this reliquary, would Charlemagne, have thought of this luxurious object as a talisman? Or is this a romantic idea invented by Alexandre Dumas in the 1830s? 
I believe it's safe to think that even Charlemagne himself would have seen and used this object as a protective healing icon, an enclopion amulet designed to wrap him in sacred and social protection. We may safely assume that the great majority of stones found in medieval jewelry performed a similar function, whether they were engraved or plain. Worn sometimes as a remedy, or more often with prophylactic purposes like an amulet, stones were desired and used by the rich and the poor, by people of really all classes. Lapides pretiosi, they are called by Isidorus, because, quote, they are expensive, and expensive because they are rare, end quote. But the numbers of precious stones in the Middle Ages, even now, doesn't strike me as being particularly low. Of course, rareness is a shifting notion. Its degree is determined by demand, and so that leads me to the conclusion that precious stones were in great demand for their enchanting and protective materiality. So that's all for this podcast on wearable medieval amulets. I would love to hear your thoughts about this episode's topic. If you know something about stones, amulets, Charlemagne, or pastoral manuals, you should let us know. You can find out more about this work and reach out with comments and questions through our social media at Lissonneur. For more information, you can also visit our website or order one of our many catalogs. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.